The following message is entitled, The Facts of Life Concerning Sin Denial, Part 5. This message was given during the morning service on August 28, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. If you didn't hear it, turn to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 today. Last Sunday of the month, I returned to this exegetical yet topical series. I'm exegeting verses 11 to 15 of Titus 2. The series is entitled, The Love of Christ. This is the last Sunday of the month series, and we're in the third of the pastoral epistles. Two out of the three pastoral epistles I'm teaching right now on Sunday mornings. First Timothy and Titus. First Timothy, going through the whole book for verse by verse, and here just targeting into Titus 2, 11 to 15. The series is entitled The Love of Christ in your note sheet, which is kind of vague. Is it the love from Christ to us or the love from us towards Christ? It's both. So the of could mean the love that comes from Christ, or the of could be the love from us towards Christ. The Lord's love is in verses 11 in the first part of verse 12. Look at the text, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. That's God's doing. Verses 11 to the beginning of verse 12. That's the love of Christ towards us. The love we are to have back to Christ is a response to the instruction. Verse 12 continues. We are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with great authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, as I've reminded you when we've occasionally been in this series the last Sunday of each month, it is rather odd that I would name a series the love of Christ when the word love isn't even mentioned in this text. What's going on with you, John? Why would you do that? Well, I did it because that's the outworking of grace, is through love. And if you look at chapter 3, we can see that. Verse 4 is a parallel verse of chapter 3 that goes right along with chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 4, look at it. For when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Kindness and love appeared. See it? Go back to verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. Again, chapter 3, verse 4, his love for mankind appeared. Chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. So obviously these are parallel terms. So I chose chapter 3, verse 4 as the theme for the series, The Love of Christ. How does love work out? It works out in godliness. If you love me, First John tells us, you will keep my commandments. Love works out in obedience and godliness. Notice in verse 12, first thing we're to deny is ungodliness. Look at the end of verse 12 of chapter 2. And we are to pursue godliness in this present age. Godliness, to be like God, to be sanctified and holy, is the underpinning to the series. 
Christ loves us so that we would be godly. We love him by demonstrating godliness. Now let's go to the note sheet for those present in the auditorium and let's follow the outline. We finished verse 11. The love of Christ, Roman numeral 1, shows forth towards all humans in a grace invitation for salvation. Bringing salvation to all men. As I've told you many times before, um, I am not a five-point Calvinist. I'm a four-point Calvinist. I do not believe in limited atonement. Uh, he died not for the elect. He died for all men. I don't know how you can get any plainer than verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. It's offered to everybody. That's what we believe, unlimited atonement. John MacArthur doesn't believe that. Um, unfortunately, he takes verses like verse 11 and the end of it and takes the words all men and just arbitrarily decides that that means only believers. I don't know how you could just define men as believers, especially when he turns the corner in verse 12 and brings it upon us, instructing us, not all men. Contrast. See that there? Us narrows it down to believers including himself, the apostle, or the disciple of the apostle, Titus. So, um, speaking to us would include Paul and Titus. So what we have here is Roman numeral one. His love is shown by offering salvation to all of us. We who are saved then take up the mantle of Roman numeral two in your outline. The love of Christ shows forth toward all believers in a grace command to be sanctified. We are instructed to do this. We're instructed by God's word to do these things, the marks of godliness, the demonstration of love. Love is not a feeling, as so many, especially in the 60s, like to sing about in our culture. It is first and foremost obedience. It contains emotions, but you can cry to God over your sin and never repent. That's not love. That's not obedience. You can tell the Lord with tears in your eyes how much you love him. Doesn't mean anything if there is an action. So the love that we are to demonstrate here in Roman numeral 2, in this command to be sanctified or godly in these 12 to 15 verses, requires action. And that's Roman numeral 2 in your outline and letter A. The love of Christ instructs believers first to leave sin. And this is where we started the journey on the marks of godliness which is still review, and we're in mark number three in your note sheet. That's why it is bigger and more bold-faced. Mark number one, the godly believer loves instruction. We can't be godly without instruction. It starts right in verse 12. We are to be continuously instructed by the word of God. The teaching of the Bible in churches is to be for believers, overwhelmingly and predominantly, not for the lost. This time here in the pulpit teaching you is not primarily to be for unbelievers. Occasionally it comes up, but go back to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, foundational gifts according to Ephesians 2, no longer in place today, and some as evangelists. Evangelism is what uh, Jalima and the Pisanos were doing yesterday, and whoever else is with them. And then in the church, some as pastors and teachers. The and should grammatically operate as a hyphen. They are pastors who teach, 
And notice the pastor teachers are for what? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. And when you're growing as a true believer, you do the work of service in the church. Teaching, pastoral teaching in the church, is only, supremely, for the equipping of the saints. Back to Titus chapter 2. So we looked at that mark extensively. If you're godly, you love instruction. As teaching sessions in the United States and churches die, teaching services are shortened or closed, we can tell then the church is not godly. The evidence of godly in a believer's life or in a church's life is a desire and hunger for more and more teaching. You can judge yourself spiritually whether you love Christ and are godly just by that first mark. Can you barely take one teaching session a week? Is it not that important in your life to be taught the word of God? Do you hunger for more? In fact, you want so much more that you can't get enough at our church with three teaching sessions a week for adults. So you go outside the church to find good Bible teaching through the internet or wherever to feed yourself as well. This is very rare. Most Christians do not manifest this at all. Even in our own church, historically, the evening service has always been dramatically underattended compared to the morning service. It's a plain demonstration by our church for my 35 years, and any church at all, because most churches have lost the evening service, so we're ahead of the game on that. But it's a plain demonstration that Christians, professed Christians, don't want anything more than a morning service and one teaching session a week. Mark number two of godliness, the godly believer loves fellowship in the body of Christ, alluded to by the word us. This is a corporate instruction, not personal instruction. Titus, like 1 Timothy, is written to uh, the people of Crete and Cyprus, and what the issue here is, we need to gather together. It's a plurality. We fellowship around the word. And we talked about the fact that you can't grow as a Christian separated out from a local church. And now mark number three, what is the direction of the instruction? Unto denying ungodliness. Mark number three in your note sheet, where we are currently. The godly believer denies ungodliness and worldly desires when he's instructed in the word. The first goal of being a godly believer under the teaching of the word is to have your sin confronted and to repent. Underneath mark number three, point number one, instructing us points believers to denial. This is the overwhelming first priority. Just as it is in evangelism, you always start with repentance. I did that with this man yesterday. You have to deal with the issue of sin. Somebody cannot just receive Christ by faith if they don't repent of their sin, and they won't repent if they don't see themselves as terrible, wicked, evil individuals. He looked at me yesterday like he had never heard such a thing before. Incredible. To live your life as a supposed Christian, a Catholic, and not even know that you're a sinner. How tragic. And do you think that priest yesterday pointed out sin? Godly believer wants this because this is our supreme battle. So point number one under mark number three in your note sheet, instructing us points believers to denial. Number two is primarily confrontational and negative. That's my job. If instruction is to bring about the denial of ungodliness and worldly desires, and that's the priority, it's got to be negative and confrontational. It's the biggest persecution I've received in 35 years from professed believers in our church here. 
Is my negativity constantly confronting sin? What does that tell you about somebody? If they don't want their sin continuously confronted, they're not godly. This is continual denial. This is ongoing. It never is to end. Under point number two, letter A, Bible teaching is primarily meant to confront sin in a believer's life. Right on a blank line. In order to get him to renounce it. That's... Mark number three, point number two, little letter A. Bible teaching is primarily meant to confront sin in a believer's life in order to get him to renounce it. Point B. Denial is our neamai, one of the words for repentance. Write it down, one of the words for repentance in the New Testament. It means to strongly renounce something. I have to keep reminding you that our word deny has two meanings in our English language. This is not denial like denying reality or denying you did something. I saw you hit that person. I deny it. That's not what this is defined as. This is not the denial of reality or the denial of admitting that we did something. This is the other way denial is defined in the English as well. To severely renounce. Like I deny myself the pleasure of alcohol. Or whatever. To renounce. Not to reject reality. So please write that under denial. It's the, it's, it means to renounce. Not to ignore or be blind to something. Now everything after that in your note sheet, letter C on down, is completely applicational. I can't get away from that word deny. I slammed on the brakes denying. Haven't even gotten to the word ungodliness yet. Everything on the front side from there all the way under the back side, this sermon, next month's, last Sunday of the month sermon, is totally applicational of that. I was looking last night in the classic work on repentance, which is entitled Repentance. First word of the gospel. I think the thing's out of print now. I bought up four copies of it before it went out of print. Leave it to the church, the English-speaking church, to take out of print one of the greatest books ever written in the history of English language on the doctrine of repentance. Leave it to the church to stop printing that. Unbelievable. The thing is this thick. A book written this thick on the doctrine of repentance. I think I can take a sermon and a half applicationally on this doctrine, then, right? So let's do it. Letter C. Eight essential facts of life concerning Bible instruction and its relationship to sin denial. By the way, I don't think any believer should go through life without reading that book. So... Say, well, it's out of print. Well, I've got four copies. You can buy one from me. It's, but because it's out of print, you know, it's supply and demand. So each copy will cost you $200.
So just, you know, want to make a profit off of repentance. That's what the goal is. Um, I will loan one of those copies out to you, but you had better read it and you better return it to me. I've loaned two of those copies out in the past. One was lost and the other was destroyed. The second one, the person who returned it to me, returned it like they left it under their dog Fidel for six months in the playpen. I couldn't believe it. I said, seriously, you're returning the book to me like this? And the person just stared at me like, yeah, so what's the big deal? Like, really? That's all right. You know, just trash my entire library. I mean, give it to Fidel. Let the Fidel chew the whole thing up. I'm ranting right now. I realize that. I'm just saying that if you want to borrow the book, that's great, but I will have my Uncle Vito in the Mafia come after you if you lose it or destroy it. Okay? Or maybe you can find a copy on the Internet still. I really don't think anyone should go through life without reading that book. It, it transformed my life. You say, how could a human book do that? It isn't the human book that did it. It's the scripture that is taught in it that did it that no one else is teaching. So as your note sheet says, this is an applicational study just of that word deny. Eight facts of life, as your sermon title says. Eight facts of life about sin denial. Number one, if a believer cannot win against sins, against sins, S-I-N-S, very important you pluralize it. It's not against sin. You can't win against sin. That sounds like heresy, doesn't it? If I'm going to define sin singular as your sin nature, you're never going to defeat it. It's already defeated at the cross, but you can't negate it so it never works. It's still there and it still operates. So, you can't win against your sin nature if we define the sin nature as you can get it to stop working and never sin again. You can't do that. Our goal in sanctification is, defeat, is to defeat sins, individual ones. Decrease the frequency and power of sins. You don't try to defeat the lordship of your sin nature. That happened at conversion. You never pray something like this. Lord, I pray that you'd strike down the lordship of my sin nature. That happened at conversion. That's what God dealt the blow to our sin nature, Romans 6 tells us, that sin shall, sin, singular, shall no longer master you. That's lordship. Can we raise up its lordship? Sure we can. But we do that through individual sins. No true believer would ever say after conversion, God, I want my sin nature to resume permanent lordship over me. That would be apostasy. So it's sins. Your goal is to see your habitual sins, Hebrews 12.1. We all have them. And your goal is to fight the war against individual sins. Defeat individual sins. Decrease the frequency and the power, the rapidity of sins in your life. Are we clear on that? That is such an important point that I'm going to stop at this point and ask if anyone has a question or a comment or is confused about that. Back to fact number one. If a believer cannot win against sins, all Bible instruction should stop. Do you understand why I say that? 
Because verse 12 says we are instructed to stop ungodliness and worldly desires. If you can't stop any ungodliness, any worldly desires, then instruction is pointless. Because we're instructed to renounce ungodly sins and lustful sins. If you can't stop any sins, instruction is pointless. Right? But this verse says this is what instruction does. That raises the conundrum, the puzzle. Well, I sit under the teaching of the word and I keep sinning the same sins over and over, same frequency, same power. I never have any victory. Instruction doesn't work. That's the dark tunnel we always choose to go through. If we're instructed to deny ungodliness, I'm instructed and I'm not denying ungodliness, then of course the blame is the instructor or the instruction. That's common sense. Amen? Some of you actually said amen. You have no idea what I just said. You should not say amen to that. That was blasphemy what I just said. Okay. No. That's our sin nature saying it's instruction's problem. When we blame instruction, I'm not having any victory. The problem is the instructor or the instruction. That's blasphemy. The goal of instruction is to do this. So fact number one is true. If a believer cannot win against sins, all Bible instruction should stop. The fact that we are to be continually instructed and it's not to stop means that it works. If it's not working, the problem isn't the instruction, the problem is the person listening. Under fact number one, we can win against individual sin battles if we do it in faith and the power of the Spirit. We can win. If you're not winning and having no victory, the problem is you. The problem is you. If we're not winning, it's us. The problem is you or I if we're not winning. How do you define winning? I just did. Less frequency, less power. The impulse to sin a certain sin is not as frequent. It is not as overwhelming. Some sins die. We don't do them anymore. That's why in your habitual sins, I encourage people in counseling to track frequency. Mark a calendar on your habitual sins. Your sin nature will always tell you, apart from any evidence shown to you, your sin nature will tell you that your sin is always getting less. It isn't until you actually track it that you get the truth. Go to Galatians 5.
Verse 16. I say walk by the Spirit. This is the only way to live the Christian life. Walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out. Teleo. Bring to completion. Continuously. The desires of the flesh. Instruction is to get you and me to walk by the Spirit, and then you will not continuously carry out the desires of the flesh. When you have no victory over the desires of the sin nature, the flesh, you will, as a true believer, lose assurance of salvation. It is axiomatic. That means this is an absolutely unbreakable rule. No victory brings doubts, then the terror that I'm not saved. It is a consequence of lack of victory. Walking by the Spirit brings about not carrying out, not reaching the constant end with every sin temptation. Walking by the Spirit means we resist temptation. The verse does not say when you walk by the Spirit, you will stop sinning. The Bible doesn't teach that. 1 John chapter 1 tells us very plainly that if anyone thinks they have no sin, they're not even a believer. How do you walk by the Spirit? Galatians tells us to walk by the Spirit, but go to Colossians. Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Uh, walking by the Spirit is the same as being Spirit-controlled or Spirit-filled. I find no difference. These three concepts in the New Testament, I have searched them down long and hard, and I haven't found any difference. To be led by the Spirit, the end of Galatians 5. To walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.17. And to be Spirit-filled or Spirit-controlled, Ephesians 5. And one thing produces all three of those. If you want to be continuously led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, it is not speaking in tongues. It is verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's it. How do I know? That that causes you to be spirit-filled, walk by the Spirit, and led by the Spirit because of the results. The results in verse 16 are, if you're letting the word richly dwell within you, then you will, with all wisdom, teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Those results in verse 16 are exactly the same as the results in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, when you are filled with the Spirit. Two different commands that produce the same results mean the two commands are synonymous. Two different commands, one, two, that produce the same results means the two commands are synonymous. Ephesians 5.18 says when you are filled with the Spirit, you do the things here in Colossians 3.16. 
And Colossians 3.16 says, when you let the word of Christ dwell within you richly, you do the same things. Walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5 shows the same fruit is produced, including peace. And peace is mentioned right here in this passage. In verse 15, peace and thankfulness. Again, Ephesians 5 does that. Are you getting the point here? The point is, instruction that we allow to richly dwell within us is what makes us deny ungodliness. Walking by the Spirit, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within, that means to tabernacle, to be at home. It is not a dead orthodox of just did my quiet time and forgot it. That is not what richly dwelling within means. It means to tabernacle, worship through the word, be convicted, submit to it, dwell on it, meditate. Dead orthodoxy, dead Bible reading, deadness sitting under sermons, just listening. You're supposed to allow sermons like this to invade your mind, convict, and promote change. As we pray for the power of God to transform us through the instruction of the word of God. So letting the word of Christ dwell within you richly produces these fruit in verse 16. That means instruction is part of that deal. Go back to Titus 2. If you don't understand this first application, you can forget about understanding the rest of them. What I am saying is this. Never say in your entire Christian life that Bible instruction is not transforming you. You should never say that. Are we clear? When you get nothing out of Bible teaching, the fault is not the communication techniques of the teacher, odd mannerisms in the pulpit, suit jackets that have double-stitched on the outside of the lapels. It is not that he is not culturally relevant. The problem when you don't get anything out of Bible teaching is you. Something is very wrong with you. Do you know why? Because verse 12 says, we're to be continually instructed to deny ungodliness. When that doesn't work, you are blocking the effect. I don't know how much simpler it can get. If you can just come under sermons and leave, sermon, leave, sermon, leave, and you get nothing and you don't remember anything, and there's no transformation in your life. It is eternally a damning proposition for you to say it's the instruction's fault. Most Christians don't do that. They don't say, well, it's not the instruction's fault, it's the instructor. What am I supposed to do up here? Song and dance, juggle? The only thing I can do is explain to you what the text says. I have no power to transform you. Right? Stories aren't going to do it. Stories only illustrate. How, how could it possibly be my fault that you get nothing out of a sermon if I'm teaching you the Bible?
sink your teeth into that apple this afternoon, huh? Take a good hard look in the mirror. How can you sit under teaching constantly in this church? And for some of you, zero transformation. This will take eight months to go through these eight applications, one per Sunday. Thank you, Father, very much for your word. Thank you for the power to transform that comes through the instruction of the word. We all, Lord, admit to you in our hearts right now that many times we get nothing out of teaching. We, notice, we know now from Titus 2.12 it's our fault, not the teacher or the teaching. There is one time when it is the teacher's fault, Lord. And it is not that he is not perfect. All teachers are sinners. So the one time that it's the teacher's fault is not because he's a sinner. There's two sides to the blame that goes on the teacher. Two sides to the coin of a teacher that should be blamed. The teacher should be blamed, number one, if he does not teach the Bible. And number two, the teacher should be blamed, Lord, if he is a heretic teaching false doctrine. But if that's the case, the Christians are sitting under these two types of teachers. Then, Lord, the people in the pew are to blame in two ways. Number one, people listening to sermons are to blame if they sit under a pastor who does not teach the Bible. Such Christians should confront that pastor to start doing it. And number two, Lord, if Christians are sitting under false teachers and heretics, they're to blame for sitting there at all. They should quit that church and never come back. Your word tells us not to confront heretics, but to renounce them and separate from them. 
A heretic, Lord, cannot repent according to your word. They are apostates. So, Lord, I'm to blame if I don't teach the Bible or if I'm a heretic. And Christians are to blame if they listen to Bible teachers who do not teach the Bible. Christians are to blame if they listen to heretics. But I do teach the Bible. And I am not a heretic. And the same is true for everyone who teaches in this church. Lord, everyone who teaches and ministries in this church teaches the Bible. And no one who teaches in ministries in this church is a heretic. So, Lord, if we get nothing out of teaching, we are sinning. And not repenting and hardened towards truth. In Jesus' name, amen.